Thank you, James. Morning, everybody. Um, uh, reminder that the uh, handouts for this are available on the uh, website. Uh, the, uh, everything should be on the screen as well, so um, yeah, you won't miss out. Um, yesterday, we thought about the Bible's story of technology. And we saw the way that the Bible views the world is very different to the way that we are trained to view the world today. If you remember, we talked about how we tend to view the world as raw material for our own use to put to our own purpose. And actually, sometimes uh, the way that we've uh, uh, used the world um, suggests purposes to us, that we are led by our technology rather than being led by uh, God's purposes as revealed to us in Scripture. Whereas the Bible sees this as God's world with its own given order and purpose that he defines and it's our role to conform ourselves to it, uh, albeit using technology uh, as a grateful uh, expression of our creativity uh, and in response often to the, the need that has been brought about by the hurts of the fall. That was a uh, 30-second summary of yesterday. I don't know why you bothered coming. Could have just started with that, couldn't I? But today I want to focus on our digital age specifically. And the first question I just want to ask is, what are, what are our lives like? What is life in the digital age like? All I'm going to do at this point is raise issues that other people, not always Christian people, have raised as well. I'm not providing anything here in the way of solutions or even biblical reflections yet. I'm not even going to say that everything here is necessarily a problem. I'm just raising the issues in a broad brushstroke uh, way. What are our lives like as we are surrounded by digital technology? May I suggest uh, five things. First, we're independent but disconnected. Uh, we're independent because we're no longer tied to the sort of infrastructure that used to be necessary for us to accomplish things. If I wanted to be, let's say, a film composer in the 1970s, I would have to spend a lot of time in cinemas watching films, in a music college learning how to compose and play, and in recording studios laying down tracks. Now I can watch films online, learn music techniques online, have my own recording studio set up on my computer... I'm not tied down to a certain space. I can work anywhere I, that I have a laptop. I'm not tied down to traditional working hours. I can be reached any time via email or text or whatever. I can communicate with anyone in any country pretty much instantaneously. I can be my own boss. I can even take a break from my work to socialize without leaving my chair. Now, it's worth noting that what I've just described is essentially the plot to an Apple commercial. Uh, that's what we want, isn't it? This independence is tremendously desirable for us. And perhaps there are some huge benefits to it too. Taking the film composer example, it means that the barrier to entry is much, much lower. It means that everything is much cheaper. It means that many more people have the tools to do fun and interesting and creative work. But as many people have pointed out, we end up disconnected as a result. We can be disconnected from other people. We no longer need to be apprenticed to someone to learn a skill. We can get it all independently of relationship. And there's another kind of disconnection here too. If we pursue this lifestyle, uh, we, we can end up with no, little or no connection to the natural world and the natural rhythms of it. As one article uh, puts it, this is Samuel James. This book, Digital Liturgies, by the way, hasn't come out yet in the UK, but uh, Samuel James' writing is fantastic, and I would uh, probably, I'm going to warmly recommend this book. I hope it's as good as the rest of his things. Anyway, uh, he says this, Smartphone technology has destroyed our sense of seasonality and place. 
Selfies at Holocaust memorials don't indicate disrespect as much as they signal the blurring of life into overlapping lines. You're supposed to be following up on email the same time you're having dinner. Keep up the social media clout as you vacation with the kids. He means holiday, but he's American. Take the artsy photo of the pastor preaching while you reflect and pray. Everything is an occasion for everything else. If we're always on, we're never off. Uh, we, the, we may become disconnected from the world in which we're placed. We become disconnected too from institutions and communities. We become monads ploughing our own furrow. We're independent, but we're disconnected. Now, whether that's a good thing or not, we can explore later. But hang on, we might think, what about online communities? You said you're disconnected from community, but you can have online communities. Well, let's think about that under our next heading, integrated but disembodied. We can certainly become integrated people in our digital world. We can form communities. I am no longer bound simply to interact with the people I am physically near. Again, in the 1880s or even in the 1980s when I was growing up, if I wanted to make some friends, I had my village or my street or my neighbourhood to choose from, pretty much. If I didn't get on with those people or they didn't share my interests, tough. That's just life. And, by the way, in the 1980s, they didn't. Uh, But now I can find like-minded people with whom to collaborate and work and share ideas and passion projects. I can build a new social network. But we're also disembodied. That is to say, these new relationships might be almost entirely digital and not physical. Now, some would say that doesn't matter. We can still relate perfectly well through text and video calling and sharing pictures and all the rest of it. But as several commentators have pointed out, that can often have a negative impact on the people with whom we do share physical space. We would rather be with our online friends than with our real-life acquaintances. And we've all sort of accepted that it's okay when in physical company to be also checking our digital world on our phone. That's no longer considered rude by most people, particularly most young people. As Lawrence Scott puts it, this is a book called The Four-Dimensional Human. Lawrence Scott is very much not a Christian, Um, but he's written a a book reflecting on life uh, in the digital age. We may have always been daydreamers, but in the past, if we lapsed uh, into a daydream while in company, people would perhaps take it as a sign either of gaucheness or of madness, and we may have had a hand waved in front of our faces. Today, we allow each other to travel back and forth from elsewhere within the stretch of a conversation, moving in and out of our physical bodies before each other's eyes. As well as that, we are able to present a version of ourselves which is different to my embodied physical state. Of course, that's possible in physical relationships too. We can always wear a mask and put up a facade, but it doesn't work for nearly as long. If I'm a member of an online community that prizes physical fitness, I can tell them that I'm a buff 23-year-old with supermodel good looks who spends eight hours a day at the gym. But in real life, I can't maintain that facade for very long. You'll see through it. In the digital world, we can manipulate our image and maintain the fiction for a lot longer. In that case, I can maintain my popularity and my influence to a much higher degree than I can manage among my physical friends. Again, whether that's a good thing or not is to be debated, but it's where we are. We're maybe integrated into various online communities, but we're increasingly disembodied. Thirdly, we are involved, but discombobulated. And yes, I just wanted to use that word. Uh, We're involved. What that means is that I have a voice online. Previously, if I wanted to get my views across, I'd need some kind of power. A publisher who'd be willing to print my stuff, or a position at a university, or a political role like being an MP. Now everyone can have a voice. 
Not only can I publicly hold forth on any particular issue, but because of phone camera footage, I can see what's going on in the world in real time, and my eyes are open to previously hidden abuses, and political activism online can achieve transformational results. But we're also discombobulated, meaning our lives feel more frazzled and hectic and confused. The real-time pace of the internet gives no real-time to process and reflect. Everything is immediately available to me, and if my voice is to be heard, I have to react quickly. I have to have a hot take. I have to be the first commenter, because there are so many people clamoring to be heard. It's such a crowded marketplace that I've either got to be very fast or very controversial to be heard. And I have to respond The web, in particular, is a medium which actively encourages people to have opinions and express them. This is what the uh, commentator Paul Ford says. Again, I don't think a believer. And he talks about um, the big rule of the internet is why wasn't I consulted? Why wasn't I consulted, which I abbreviate as WWIC, is the fundamental question of the web. It is the rule from which other rules are derived. Humans have a fundamental need to be consulted, engaged, to exercise their knowledge and thus power, and no other medium that came before has been able to tap into that as effectively. Something happens online and you say, hang on a minute, I haven't had my say yet. Why wasn't I consulted? Everyone is entitled to my opinion. Do you see his points? People who are brought up on the web are so used to being able to post comments on everything, every new product, every new video, song or idea, that they feel they ought to be consulted on everything, which means that we have to have an opinion on everything. Now, we might think that's an acceptable trade-off because we've moved from an era of passive media, where we simply sit in front of the TV, to active media and engagement and involvement. But it's fair to say that uh, many people are so involved that we end up feeling discombobulated by the hectic and frantic pace of our online lives. Fourthly, we are informed but distracted. The web has opened up massively exciting new horizons in education. I can learn new skills, take online courses, find out new facts, share new ideas. I can read textbooks and encyclopedias. I can directly message authors and thinkers. I can engage in discussion with experts from all over the world. So what do I do? I look at pictures of cats. I don't actually because I hate cats but sorry Uh, no come on we're all one in Christ I read that says that out there Um, we are the most distracted generation that has ever lived we check our phones on average once every 4.3 minutes and now don't underestimate this every device I have does everything we shouldn't underestimate that change In the previous generations, if I wanted to write something, I'd use a pen and paper or a typewriter, something that really just did that one thing. And while I was sitting with those tools, that's all I could do with them. Now, the same device that let me write this session also played me music, remind me of the meetings I had, tell me when I had new email, offered me games to play, and gives me the countless distractions of the web. Uh, I used to work, I I have a doctor in computer science, I used to be a computer science researcher, and I used to do a bit of work in user interface design. And in user interface design, um, they talk about what a particular device affords. That is, what behavior it encourages you to do. So a handle on a door affords pulling, it makes you want to pull it. A big red button affords pushing, it makes you want to push it, right? 
and good user interface design, free lesson in user interface design, is about marrying the function of a thing with what it affords. If you put a handle on a door, but the door pushes, that's bad design, right? Okay, we've got that. If you have a website with a big red button-shaped thing on it, but you don't let the user click it, that's frustrating, because a big red button affords clicking. So let me ask you a question. What does this afford? What does my smartphone afford? What does it want me to do? As a physical object, it is completely useless. It affords nothing. But as soon as I light up the screen, it affords everything. What do you want to do? There's an app for that. It can do anything you like. And so it affords simply looking at it all the time and doing everything with it. And if you can't think of anything to do, it'll ping you notifications all day, every day. Suggest websites you might want to look at, games you might want to play, apps you might want to install. Our phones afford everything. So if you've got one, then anything you want to do will... Oh, and we're out with the phone. Again, we might think that's an acceptable trade-off because we're never bored. Are you ever bored? But it's where we are. We are informed, but we are distracted. Finally, we are indulged but dissatisfied. I can now pretty much get anything I want at any time I want it. I can binge on a box set. I can order any takeaway meal I like from my phone. I can get any fruit or vegetable I like at any season of the year. I can get any product in the world pretty much on prime delivery next day. And if I ever have a sexual fantasy, I can watch it played out on a screen. We in the affluent West essentially live now in a world without want. We can have it all. And yet, I'm sure I don't need to convince you we live in an extremely dissatisfied world. And we know it. I saw an advert recently which began uh, with people who were surrounded by digital technology, but clearly dissatisfied and, and bored and unhappy and unfulfilled, and they were singing the song from The Little Mermaid. I'm not going to sing it, but I will say it for you. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's its and what's its galore. You want thingamabobs? I've got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. Does anyone know what the advert was for? iPad. <laughs> another thingamabob, another digital device. All my digital devices are unfulfilling, so what I need is another one. And I thought, has anybody watched this back before you put it on television? Clearly, we are driven to want more and more from our technology, even as it offers us experiences our forefathers could never have dreamed of. We're indulged. But we're dissatisfied. This is what, um, in the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis says uh, as an effective strategy for his demon to pursue. Um, he wants his uh, demon to tell his client, to get his client to see that I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. In fact, he wants them to do nothing. And he says, nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering over the mind, over it knows not what and knows not why, in the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them. Okay, I would like you to discuss some of that, please. Um, do these descriptions of life in the digital age ring true? Uh, was there one in particular that you thought, yes, that, that helped, that describes my life or the life of my friends or whatever? Uh, what are the good things here? What are the negatives? And do you see or hear non-Christian friends express any misgivings about life in the digital world? Let's take about 10 minutes with the person next to you to have a chat about that. Okay, I'd be, um, I'd be interested to get a little bit of feedback. We'll get the mic going. Anyone would like to share anything that you've been talking about? I'm, I'm not looking for specifics, but anything that came up in your conversation that 
was helpful or uh, encouraging. Yeah, down here. Sorry, Rachel. And um, one of the things we chatted about as a sort of a positive thing, you mentioned the film yeah. composer analogy, yeah. and I was I was sat here thinking. Like I myself make some music myself, and I wouldn't have been able to do that yeah. without a laptop that I can plug a piano into and can yeah, record yeah. my music, and then I can put it online, and other people can hear that and go, wow, that's really encouraging. And mm. that, so digital stuff has provided me a way for me to be creative, which if I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, or whatever, literally wouldn't have been able to do. I'd have had to have gone and, I don't know, played the organ at church, and that would have been the extent of it. Um, We're and missing so it's out allowed. Your, your organ playing, brother. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> It's, it's allowed me to be creative yeah. in my worship and other people to hear that, appreciate that and, yeah. that, and that wouldn't have happened without it. And I know I've encountered so many other artists as well that I've discovered online who they themselves wouldn't have been able to showcase the world what they can do if it wasn't for this, the digital age. So it's, that was one of the good things you talked about. Obviously, it's good, helpful to do these things because if you don't think about them often, then you will just find yourself ending up at the end of these negatives that you're talking about, yeah. looking back and thinking, oh, wh- how did we get here? Yeah, exactly right. Um, so yeah. yeah, thank you. That's helpful. That's helpful. So there are some real positives here. Don't, I know I'm perhaps raising a, a, a slightly Luddite thing on this, but uh, there are some real positives. Uh, lady down here, Rachel. I walk up to my Asda store every day, and it takes about 20 minutes, and the number of people pushing their children in prams, not even looking at their children and on their iPads. And I think this is going to create big problems in the future because the children aren't interacting and, you know, you wonder if they'll all get autism and things like that because there's no communication. It is a worry, isn't it? I saw one yesterday about a um, a headline that said... um, uh, a spate of phone thefts in London, and the headline was horror as um, smartphone is stolen from toddler in pram. And she said, I would, I'm on the side of the thief in this particular instance. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's beside the point. Um, yeah, we, we were talking a bit about the concept of what the technology affords. Yes. And perhaps that um, there's a misalignment between the expectation of what the technology is and the reality of what it means to use it right. and that you know when we look at something that affords a certain function um, because of marketing back to little mermaid yep. we expect it to provide more yes. um, than it does yep. uh, and then that's where the kind of um, discontentment comes from and the, the realization that actually this is not as good as i thought it was going to be yeah um, and that kind of thing yeah really useful yeah do pass the microphone there um when you get a, a new phone gets advertised, right, and you it's a new, bigger camera, more space, the rest of it, and you get it and you set it up, and it's still got all the same apps on it. It's, you know, it's still just the same as the last one, just the screen hasn't broken. But it's it's sold as the uh, the solution to all your problems, and it's just the same as it was before. We talked about that you need to intentionally sort of discipline yourself with it yes. and that you intentionally need to work for focus and all of those things otherwise it'll master you yes. but it takes a lot of effort it really does take a lot of effort yeah we'll come back to that it's a really important point thank you uh, we mentioned that um uh covid is awful uh, but technology allowed churches to continue to meet and support one another yeah. uh, and even though the the main threat of that seems to have receded. There are still some churches who still use some online means because the accessibility it affords to yep. people with disabilities or who can't otherwise get out yep. has been a huge benefit. Yep. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed while I've been at Keswick here is that 
Uh, if I'm present in a meeting, in a seminar, I'm present in it. Yes. If I'm watching it live on video, then I'm so much more distractible. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a universal. Yeah, that's a very, very, uh, very astutely observed. I think that's right. I felt the same way. Uh, a Zoom meeting is a wonderful thing, is it? Uh, it's, it's a thing. Um, but I think uh, I've, I've found personal experience a 10 minute chat. Uh, with someone face-to-face, -face, I can get so much more out of it than an hour Zoom meeting. I'm sure we'd all agree with that. Okay, positives and negatives. Wonderful things, great blessings that the Lord has allowed us to do, but concerns and, and worries and, and uh, anxieties, absolutely right. So what impact does that have then on uh, how we should think? How should we then live? Now, I've got some suggestions, and uh, all the suggestions begin with the words... Uh, knowing, start with the mind. And that's because I'm persuaded that the Bible sees the main way we are shaped is through, to quote Romans 12, as we did uh, yesterday, the renewing of our minds, or to quote Psalm 1, by meditating on the law day and night. And that's particularly important to, to stick with that as we think about technology, because so often the challenge we find with digital technology is that it distracts us. We find ourselves checking our phones once every 4.3 minutes, or being pulled away from our work by YouTube. And that's a real concern because of the Bible's focus on paying close attention to the Word of God. Attention is such a, a precious commodity in our world, and uh, many companies are fighting to get our attention. But if you think about the number of times Moses calls the people of Israel to pay close attention to the Word of the Lord, to listen, to remember, to repeat, to meditate... Think of the son in Proverbs called to pay close attention to his father and mother's instruction. Uh, we will either attend to the worldview of those around us, walk in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers and so on, or, or not pay much attention to anything and be distracted and just drift in the way of sinners, or we will attend to the word of the Lord and be shaped that way. So in what way should our minds be renewed? How can we uh, think more clearly on this? Now, I'm going to be honest, this will seem very simple, uh, but all of these things will take a lifetime to do well, and the more conscious and intentional we can be about them, the better. So firstly, um, know your God. We will always be tempted to idolize technology to get from it security and satisfaction and hope for the future. Medicine will cure my body. Entertainment will nourish my soul. Uh, scientific advances will end the chaos in the world and bring about harmony and order. We have a tendency, I think, to look down on the idolaters of the ancient world that we read about in Scripture because they believed that mere created things mediated through statues and bits of wood and metal could teach them and guide them and save them. But we do precisely the same thing. If you, uh, the panic we feel when we can't find our phone would alone, I think, convince a time traveler from the ancient Near East that our phones are our idols, or at least that they mediate an idolatry to us. But turning from idolatry is a key to being Christian. And what Paul says to the Thessalonians, the Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us 
from the coming wrath. Now note there that in that verse, Christians are known not to be idolaters. They are so significantly different from the culture around them in a way that is completely noticeable to outsiders. Paul doesn't actually need to say anything because their li- the way of life is so different that everyone's gone, hang on, what's going on over there? That's odd. That's, I think that's worth thinking about. Sometimes you hear the idea that Christians ought to be at the forefront of technological innovation in order to make better tools or to put the latest tools to work in the service of the gospel. And I think there's something to that. But perhaps this verse ought to give us a little pause. I'm not saying that if you're at the forefront of technological innovation, you're an idolater. But um, often the rush to create the new and the latest and the better and the more has a slightly idolatrous undercurrent that as Christians we have to sort of fight against. Jesus is the one who saves us from the coming wrath, not anything we as humans can make. That's what it says in Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our gods. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Put your trust in technology, in what we can make and do in order to fix this world, and I'm afraid you'll fall. Trust in the name of the Lord. And you'll rise up and stand firm. And remember, we are made for relationship with God. He is the one who brings satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning and purpose. I'm sure I'm not need to convince you that's not a new iPad. Um, as Brian Brock says in his Christian Ethics in a Technological Age, which is very good for the first half, um, says, uh, in this, uh, it gets a bit odd in the second, in this word to humanity, we may learn that technology cannot displace reliance on God's grace, meaning it must not itself become a false home. In the house of worship, God tells humanity that it does not need to frantically create a home because it's already been housed by a gracious creator. So to live well in a technological world, we need to progressively know our God's And that's why I think it's so important to commit ourselves to gathering as God's people around the word in local churches. Modern digital technology has the effect of fragmenting us, fragmenting our time, our attention, our bodily presence with the people, gathering in a community of mutual encouragement around a word which will introduce us to a God who is so much better than what the world has to offer. That's a powerful remedy against that. Secondly, we need to know ourselves. We are sinners living in a sinful world that is sustained by God's common grace. And that means that technology is not wholly good, it's not wholly bad, but it's certainly not neutral. Indeed, we should be aware that even excellent tools designed with the purest motives can become dangerous weapons in our hands. And it's not just that they might lead us to do sinful things or give us opportunity to do sinful things, it's that we ourselves may be shaped by idolizing our technology. Um, Here is what Psalm 135 says. The idols of the nation are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So we ought to be very aware of what technology can do for us, um, but also what it can do to us. And be prepared to, if we need to, radically stop using technologies that are a particular temptation to us. The world will tell us, this is, you, need to, you need this. You need this new thing. You need this new app. You need this new service. You need to get involved in it. And the Bible says, no, you don't. You don't need it. There is great gain in godliness with contentment, in living a life that doesn't need to be surrounded by advanced technologies. There is a certain societal pressure to keep up with the latest things, to be always on and always connected. 
And whenever anyone raises any sort of objection to the latest technological advance, the reply always comes, well, you know, this is what always happens. Every generation grows up and gets older and then despairs that their children are using tech that they didn't have. But we'll all adapt and it'll be fine. But, and anyway, it's just inevitable. You know, you live in a world with Twitter now, you've just got to get on it and get on with it. But um, as Craig Gay says, I think very helpfully, the suggestion that we will eventually adapt to our technologies is curious. Why should we have to? Aren't our technologies supposed to make our lives better and easier? Aren't our tools supposed to serve us? This is a kind of civilizational error in which it comes to be believed that the human soul must somehow be made to fit the requirements of modern technological systems rather than ordering these systems to the requirements of the human soul. Yes, but I haven't really um, done much on this, but I think that's a particular issue with AI at the moment. Uh, we, we're told what, what, it's in the world now, just you know, got to, got to deal with it. Uh, and a number of people who have been involved in the manufacturing, the, the production of AI, have, have raised their own concerns about this, haven't they? And said, so, well, I'm, not, I'm not sure this is a good idea, you know. Um, one of the things that I think um, has been missing from the conversation about AI, lots of scaremongering about how one day the robots will launch nuclear missiles into the sun. I kind of think, well, yeah, maybe. But that doesn't seem like the major concern to me. My concern with AI, I'm going off script here, this is dangerous. Um, well, my concern with AI is that the, the promise of AI is that it will produce the things that humans produce without humans having to produce them. So it'll produce art and music and sermons and lectures and things like that. And therefore, you guys can just go, blah, 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 oh, there's some art, and you can get, then get on with the rest of your lives. I see two issues with this. One is, what is the rest of our lives that we're supposed to be getting on with? What else are we supposed to be doing apart from creating beautiful things and forming God's world? Uh, this idea that you can outsource the boring stuff like art and music while you can do what exactly? Uh, the other thing I, issue I see with it is the world does not need more art or more music or more sermons. It needs more artists, musicians and preachers. Actually, AI promises the end product without the nasty, horrible bit of forming humans into mature people. I think learning skills and being creative is part of what we are to be human. So our friend here who makes music, we could get AI to generate his music for him and you could have the week off. But to form him in the, as a musician, as someone who's given time and energy to developing a skill, uh, is a part of his maturity as a human being. And for AI to say, oh, it's all right, I don't need any of that. We'll just press a button, it will go. That seems to be a bigger issue to me than thermonuclear war in 20 years' time. Anyway, there you go. Um, the big point. We do not have to let the world set the agenda of how we use technology. We can decide for ourselves how much we want to participate and use the tools we're given, and we can be alive to the dangers of using them. And perhaps we want to be particularly wary of that when it comes to our children. I'm going to tell you what we've done with our kids, and I want to be very, very, very clear. This is not what I think you should do. This is what we've, the decision that we've made about smartphones and children, that other Christians are going to make a different decision on this. But here's what we said. Um, for our kids, we just haven't, we've said to them, we're never going to buy a smartphone. Um, and the reason for that is because, basically because I can't use a smartphone well. I'm 41 years old, I've been a Christian for 25 years, and I find it an incredible temptation. I find it very, very easy to be distracted on my phone. I find I get it out at times when I don't need to get it out. And I think I have more self-control than my 13-year-old son. 
and I don't have enough self-control to use it well. I, I might just be, I have a particularly addictive personality or be a terrible person, but I've just, I just find I've, I'm not very good at using it. And so as, I'm training our, as we're training our children to grow up with godliness and self-control as their priorities, I, think it's, I personally think for me and for our kids, I think it's quite unfair for me to give my son um, the entire internet in his pocket and say, okay, now be self-controlled. <laughs> and, and now I, I know that you can do wonderful things with family software and limiting and screen time and all the rest of it, and that's great, and that's fine. That's one way of doing it. I don't want to uh, belittle that. But part of it is to say, you, we, we don't have to do what everyone else at school is doing, actually. As Christians, we're actually up for doing things differently to everybody else. And at the moment, so my son's 13, so, you know, we might not have hit the really tough patch yet, but at the moment, he's, he's grateful, and he gets frustrated. <laughs> Actually, our 11-year-old said to us, he went to his, um, uh, a leaving party for the year six, and he said, uh, I went to the leaving party, and I, everyone was just on their phones the whole time, texting each other on their phones while being in the same room at the leaving party in year six, on the, on the year six WhatsApp group, which I'm pretty sure you're not allowed to have as 11-year-olds. And he sort of said, what's the point of me not having a smartphone so I can talk to my friends? Well, I can't talk to my friends because they're on the smartphones. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, there is a logic to that, actually. But they could see that, that they, didn't like, they didn't like that. They said, why, why are my friends doing that? Why can't I walk to school with my friends without them nearly getting run over by traffic? Because they're like this. So, uh, I don't know. Listen, it's really hard being a parent, and it's really hard making these decisions. Um, but the, I think the narrative that... Um, the world is going to tell us is it is inevitable that your life will be mediated from a smartphone, so get your kids on them early and teach them to use it well. If you want to do that as a parent, go for it, do it wisely, do it well. For us, I, th- I, I want to resist that inevitability and say it's not, I don't think that is inevitable. I think you can live better without one, and so we're going to give you a Nokia. Um, when, when, I was, when I was young, I had, my mum always sent me off with 20p in my pocket because if I got lost, there was a payphone. Um, that's, and we've said to our kids, this is 20p in your pocket. That's what we've done. And I'll tell you what I've done with my phone in a minute to um, help myself with my crippling lack of self-control. Um, but think it, whatever it is, think intentionally about how you're going to do it. Let's do what everyone else is doing. Uh, here is, um, if you want ambitions for your kids, here is what Paul says is ambition. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Uh, I just don't think you need a lot of advanced technology to to make that your ambition. You can use it, and if you use it well for the Lord, great. But you don't need it. Know yourself. Know what's going to be a temptation for you. Know what temptations you're putting in the hands of your kids and think really clearly and intentionally and prayerfully about them and make a good and godly decision for the Lord. Thirdly, know your limits. (laughs) know your place that is to say remember what god remembers Um, as a father has compassion on his children so the lord has compassion on those who fear him for he knows how we are formed he remembers that we are dust the life of mortals is like grass they flourish like a flower of the fields the wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more that is, we are limited people. We are small and earthbound. Our brains are quite small and our lives are very short. Now, wonderfully, that is an occasion for God's compassion. He loves the limited. But we need to remember amid a world of delimiting technology that we are made to be limited. We are made to be embodied. 
that has a few implications, I think, as we think about technology. It means that technology, which promises to remove all our limits and free us from the annoyance of embodiment, ought to make us just raise our eyebrows a little bit. Uh, there was a... Um, I'm going to forget this now. Uh, there was a... Uh, there's recently been a, a, a flight, a non-stop flight to Australia that's just been announced, right? Someone's doing a non-stop flight to Australia. And um, the subtitle of when they announced the thing was, we will free you from the tyranny of distance. I thought, that's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? That distance from, a, from Australia is, is tyrannical. I'm not making any comments of Australians. <laughs> and we did just have the ashes. But, uh, but the idea that distance is bad, being far away from somebody is bad, and we've got, our, our goal is to free you from that awful thing of being far away from Australia. Sorry, I can't help it. Um, but no, 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 no. We're limited, we're earthbound. That's not to say we shouldn't fly anywhere or we shouldn't visit people and things like that. But to say that, that limitation is bad is not biblical. And it also means that we should be wary of technology or the use of technology that has a chance to decouple us from a sense of time and space. So a very simple example if I'm halfway up a mountain on holiday with my family and I'm checking work emails on my phone, I think I'm not inhabiting that particular time and space and calling that God has given me at that moment to be a husband and a father. And also, uh, thinking about tonight, to be at rest and think that God actually knows how to take care of the world. He doesn't need you to check your emails all the time to do that. You can have a break because God doesn't. Um, more on that tonight... But there is the risk of trying to be free of the very limits that God has put on me, as Lawrence Scott calls it, trying to be a four-dimensional human in a three-dimensional world. The paradox is that the technology promises that being unlimited is liberating and it's freeing. But in reality, I think it's limitation that makes us most free. If I can go anywhere and do anything and love anyone and be anyone, then what on earth do I do? The choice is overwhelming. I will always feel like I'm missing out on something because there are so many ways to act and to be. I think it's dreadful that we're telling our children they can be whatever they want to be and they can do anything if only they believe it. Our kids hate that stuff. They hate it. It's a, what, 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 that's all, now it's all on me. It's a massive burden. You've got to decide for yourself who you are and then you've got to self-actualize. Ah, I'm 11. <laughs> Just leave me alone. Um, it's just, we're overwhelmed by choice. It leads to anxiety, it leads to stress, it leads to power, being paralysed by indecision. Or I'll end up trying to do everything and end up stretched too thin or burnt out and I'll do no good at all. But if I have limits, if I have 10 people in my small group who I'm called to love deeply and well, or eight hours in the day in which to do my work before I put all the tools away and focus on my family, then I think I'm more liberated to form the kind of deep local relationships which will do much more good than all my unfulfilled dreams. It might not be showy or spectacular or catch anyone's attention, but it will be pleasing in God's sight and satisfying for us. Um, what, what, who's this? This is Chris Watkin. Yes, this is not from Chris Watkin's Biblical Critical Theory, but that's an excellent book with a terrible title. Really, really good. But this is uh, something he wrote about meta. Who had a meta? You know, the, the sort of multiverse thing. Uh, not multiverse, digiverse thing that uh, Zuckerberg wanted to create, and he sort of shelved because it was a terrible idea. But anyway, for those who labour under the Enlightenment and latterly Zuckerbergian prejudice... 
that ideal reality is immaterial and universal. The notion that God could have a body is quite a scandal. But it is deeply, deeply good news that the word became flesh. It means, to put it in the bluntest terms possible, that bang average bodies like yours and mine are not bad. Speak for yourself, Chris. Perhaps it will become a lot of Christians in the coming decades to be thought backward for our embrace of ordinary bodies. If that is so, let us wear the moniker with pride. We're following in the footsteps of our saviour. That has all sorts of implications we don't have time to explore now. I think that helps with a, a question that a couple of people have raised already about the usefulness of things like Zoom and so on and uh, live stream in the past few years of pandemic. As our brother said, fantastic gifts to help with accessibility and extended the reach of the gospel. Um, we found that as our church, we found that uh, people outside of our city were joining into our live streams during the pandemic. But we still took the decision to turn off our public live stream a couple of years ago. We haven't turned it back on. We do have a private link for those who in our church family who can't make it. We do put our sermons on YouTube, so we're not being completely sort of cut off on this. But I, I, when I spoke to this about other people, we say we, we, we turned off our live stream quite early. We're not going to put it back on. Some people think that's a bit odd, and perhaps it is. Because, but the argument is, well, if you're creating good Bible content, you want as many poss- people as possible to hear that Bible content. Uh, isn't, that, isn't that what we want? Isn't that a positive way we can use technology to shape and create culture by putting great Bible stuff out there? And it might well be. But I do think it's important to say that creating culture is not the same, necessarily the same, as creating content or creating connections. That's the message we're told by many in our world, interestingly largely by social media companies, that more content and more connections are unquestionably good things. But I think the vision of what the Bible, what it means to be a local church, does raise a question mark to that. If we're going to be a community where non-believers can see something lived out which looks very different to the world around us, where deep relationships and long-term discipleship are the norm, where embodiment is celebrated, when limitation is celebrated, then more content and more connections digitally are not necessarily the best way to achieve that. Um, it's a difficult decision, this. I'm not saying this is easy. Here's a quote from uh, Zach Eswine. Zach Eswine wrote a book called Sensing Jesus, which is an excellent book with an awful title. So he re-launched uh, re, um, it a few years ago called uh, The Imperfect Pastor, it's now called, much better. But he says this, In other words, to take up one's cross is to let a particular tree press upon our actual shoulders on a local road within a specific community. Twitter, Facebook, virtual conferencing, these allow us the illusion of being somewhere other than where we are. Positively, we have a voice in places otherwise absent to us. There is a positive. But we type on our keyboards while sitting in a chair where we are, the local knowledge and work of the day in our place awaiting our presence. The danger here is that it allows us to give our gifts without giving ourselves. My point is, no matter how far technology allows our gifts to travel, we ourselves, the persons that we actually are, remain rooted to one place at one time. And we told, so for example, we told um, both the Christians and the non-Christians who were live streaming into our church that no matter how good our content is, no matter how good our preaching is, they would be better off getting to know a local community of Christians who could actually share life with them in the place where they were. We wrote to them all, as many as we knew were streaming in, and said, look, here's a church you might want to get involved in. That's the kind of culture that we wanted to create, a kind of culture that celebrates limitedness, localness, because that's a good thing. 
Other chair is going to have a different view on that, and that's fine. It's not a judgment thing. It's just a, a, a wisdom thing about how we made that decision. Fourthly, how are we doing for time? Nearly there. Know your world. Hopefully, these sessions have helped us to see that beyond the, the skin-deep shininess and glamour of the technology we're offered, there is a dissatisfaction and sadness in the worldview beneath. And my simple point is that we need to clear-sightedly see that. Yes, we can see the common grace of God in good uses of technology. We can receive technology with thanksgiving as a gift from God. But we also need to see how a world which has been promised so much by the digital tech has received so little. We need to see the cynicism of people who are building an attention economy and trying to get you to look at your phone all the time. We need to see the horror of the pornography industry, which is enslaving so many young men and women. We need to see the sadness and emptiness that lies behind many people's obsessive posting on social media. Uh, um, I probably don't need to convince you of this, but a couple of quotes. Again, this is Sam James. We need to seriously consider the possibility that our despair comes in large part from a sense that we are enslaved to things we don't even enjoy. What is addiction if not an ever-increasing compulsion for an ever-diminishing reward? The language of addiction is indeed appropriate for talking about digital habits, especially in light of how social media and streaming platforms engineer their products to be as bingeable as possible. Tech enslavement does not necessarily mean that we don't do anything other than drowning in the Twitter or YouTube algorithms. No, it need only mean that as mindless use of digital technology becomes more established in daily life, our minds and emotions rebel against it in the form of an unshakable sense of frustration. Frustration is looking up and realizing that yet another day has been wasted in the pit of autoplay or the emotional tyranny of trending topics or the lonely envying of a feed full of picture-perfect lives. We get past this frustration by accepting it as normal, as inevitable, perhaps even as the price of participation in modern life. We get past it by not thinking about it, by swiping one more time, perhaps only pausing to take one more drink. Um, or another quote from an author who's going to publish a book this year called uh, Michael Circasis. I think his book is going to be excellent. Uh, this is something he's posted online. It seems clear enough that the problem of isolation and loneliness predates the advent of the internet, social media, and smartphones. It seems clear as well, contrary to the claims of the prophets and ideologues of connection, that they mediate relationships in a manner that does not assuage the root causes of isolation and loneliness. What's more, it may often be the case that they aggravate the condition. In Isaiah 44, we're told that no one stops to think about their idolatry. So hopefully these sessions will have helped us to stop to think about ours. In the West, we have used technology very effectively to do a lot of good and to end an awful lot of suffering. But the suffering of a world out of step with God is something no technology can fix and that every technology will in some way uh, be affected by and which some technology will exacerbate. So let your heart go out to a suffering world out of relationship with God. Pray for God's mercy on our broken world and be prepared for lots of people to come into your churches who are deeply, deeply sad and frustrated and dissatisfied and build a culture which is different where they can see the Lord in your midst. And remember that the answer to this, the, the point of this seminar is not to go away and say, okay, the, 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 I've got, my salvation is in how little I use technology. Uh, We will never find our satisfaction and place in this world, whether we use technology a lot or whether we sort of are a bit of an ascetic. 
Uh, and so I want to raise a slight critique. Many of you will have read um, people like Wendell Berry and uh, what uh, sort of a movement called neo-asceticism, the idea that we should deliberately eschew all modern technology uh, and go back to sort of simple, simpler ways. And I'm very attracted by that, but I don't think the answer uh, to our digital age is dump all your tech in the sea and go and live in a cabin in the woods, uh, pleasing though that might be. Because all the, this world does have a natural order which we are to conform ourselves to. It also has a disorder. It's under the curse of sin, which means we'll never find our permanent home here. You can sort of go back to nature all you like, but you'll still be a sinner in a broken world. If technology helps life in this world be more bearable, that's good, that's great. Let's embrace it, let's enjoy it. And a Christian view of the world may actually drive a creation of new technology. Uh, The Indian writer Vishal Mangalwadi, which I'm pronouncing incorrectly, uh, says that Christianized societies tend to create technologies that do precisely that. He says a culture will not invest in wheelbarrows or pumps if its decision makers feel there's a surplus of time and woman or manpower. Only a society with a theological climate that values human dignity begins using technology as a force for human emancipation and empowerment. So don't, you know, there's, there's, a, there's really, really good use of technology and we should, we should use those with a Christian vision and with a biblical worldview. But the point is we always need to look to God's word to give us a vision of what the world ought to be like. And we'll also need to always need to look to Christ and his return to find the solution to our dissatisfied wandering. And that leads to uh, finally know your purpose. I think we've seen that if we approach tech with the wrong purpose or with no real purpose, it will shape that purpose for us. As someone said down here, um, if we are not masters of our tech, it will, will be mastered by them. And so we need to turn to scripture to see what our lives ought to be about and bring that purpose to our use or our non-use of technology. So what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. It tells us to seek to tell others the good news of Jesus It tells us to commit to a local church and to love people. It tells us to work hard so we can provide for our families and give to others. It tells us to pay close attention to scripture and to let that form us. It tells us to live in the expectation of Jesus' imminent return. It tells us to enjoy God and love him. That's pretty much it. That's what we're for. That's what being a human being is. And so with that in mind, we need to diligently and thoughtfully use technology or deliberately not use it in such a way that furthers those purposes. And where we have failed, where we have wasted time or misspent energy or been shaped in ungodly directions, we need to repent and ask God for forgiveness and rejoice in his mercy and rest in his grace. Um, Have I got time for this? Let me just briefly talk you through this. This is a, a way of thinking about a technology of any particular technology that you've got in your life, um, which might be helpful. I find this helpful. Um, there's a bit of a spectrum. So on one side, you've got uh, receive. So uh, 1 Timothy 4 says, uh, everything good is created by God and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So if you've got a piece of technology in your life that you're thankful for, thank God for it. Have you ever sat down and thanked God for your smartphone or your kettle or your car? It's a gift. So deliberately bring it back to the Lord and say, thank you, I'm really glad for this. Receive it with thanksgiving. On the other hand, there might be technologies or something for you in your discipleship now that, uh, that, uh, that don't help you love God and neighbor. 
There are some, perhaps some technologies that all Christians everywhere need to reject. There probably are. But I'm thinking about you in your person, personal life. Are there things that are going to stop you loving God and neighbor that you just have to, for you in your discipleship, say no to? For me, that's all social media. I'm just not on any of it. I, I'm a habitual time waster. I have a slightly addictive personality, and I just can't do it. So I've just said no. I just don't have anything on it. Uh, I, I, any social media things, I don't really feel like I'm, I'm missing out particularly on that. You might have some other. You might put social media in the receive and give thanks for it. Great, praise the Lord, and actually praise the Lord. Um, but most technologies, I think, probably fall in the middle, where it's sort of a mixed blessing. It's you can thankful for it, but you're also sort of a bit ambiguous about it. So, what about thinking about how could you redeem that technology if you redesign and redeploy it? Um, it would help you love God and neighbour. Very briefly, this is what I've done with my phone. So. On my phone, I, use, I have a phone, I enjoy it. I have uh, like a podcast thing on here. I've got um, Google Maps. Uh, I've got parking apps because you need them, don't you? I don't have a browser. Um, I don't have email. I've got a personal email account that no one knows about, which is just for like tickets and, you know, that kind of thing. I don't have my work email. I don't have a browser on it. So that, or, or any kind of distracting thing, I've just taken all that off. I've sort of redesigned it, which is one of the benefits of this kind of thing. You can redesign it. I've redesigned it so that if I'm on the toilet and I take it out, there's nothing on it. So let's just be brutal here. I just, there's nothing to see. I can't be distracted. If I get it out, on, uh, if, if I get it out at mealtimes, there's, there's nothing to see, so we put it away. And we, we, one of the designs we have as our family, we don't no phones at the table. We have a rule that humans sleep upstairs, devices sleep downstairs, no devices in the room. These aren't rules that you have to do. You can go completely different if you like. There's uh, a number of people who say, but, my, but my, my, my phone's my alarm clock. I will buy you an alarm clock. They cost, <laughs> they cost five pounds. You know, just go and get an alarm clock. And then maybe don't look at Facebook until two in the morning. Sorry, I'm not, I feel like I'm judging you personally. I don't know you. <laughs> Last thing. Um, ask the right questions. A helpful way to personally reflect on this talk is to ask a few questions of your own use of technology. Here are five I found helpful. Um, does my use of technology express my freedom as a new covenant Christian to turn away from sin, or am I being enslaved by passions and pleasures? Is my use of technology driven by a God-given, Christ-centered purpose, or am I letting my purposes be shaped by my tech? Could someone learn something about the character of God and the order of creation through observing or benefiting from my use of technology? Does my use of technology promote love for God and love for others such that my relationships with God and neighbor are deepened because of it? And does my use of technology demonstrate that I'm living for the world to come or that I'm seeking satisfaction and meaning from this world alone? I am aware of the irony of people taking photos with their phone of that thing. <laughs> but if you uh, take those questions away, reflect. They're on the, there's a handout on the website, they're all on there. Have a think, have a reflect. You will come up with different decisions to me, I'm almost convinced. But be thoughtful, be deliberate, be intentional. Let us use our technology for the glory of God. Uh, it doesn't mean we have to do the same as everybody else, does it? Uh, we can live radically different lives for Jesus and his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all the technology we've enjoyed this morning, from microphones and speakers and chairs and paper and phones and coffee machines and wonderful gifts that you've given us. And we are thankful and we receive them with thanksgiving. Father, help us to use those things for your glory. Help us to be 
careful and thoughtful about what the things that we don't use or the way we use them in order to redesign them and redeploy them for your kingdom. And we pray that we would love you, that we would love our neighbor, and that our use of technology would promote those goals in a way that is profoundly attractive to a sad and dissatisfied world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.